Kate, thank you so much for uh, taking a little bit of time to be on the Medicaid Transformation podcast. Your colleagues both here and nationally say a whole lot of really nice things about you behind your back and um, your leadership I think can be felt here. Tell me a little bit about the, the 40 year arc and why you ended up here and why it's important to you that you are here. Thank you, and thanks so much for uh, taking the time to get to know uh, Boston Medical Center a little bit. It's a, it's a truly remarkable place. I started my career in healthcare um, as a shift supervisor in an emergency room at Montefiore Hospital in the Bronx in 1979. And I've had, I think, every job you can have as a healthcare executive along the way. Uh, it was not a meteoric rise to the top, but I've been in this role now for, for 10 years. And what I love about Boston Medical Center is I really think that the we have the opportunity to create the solutions that the state of Massachusetts, the city of Boston, the state of Massachusetts, and the nation need in providing the highest quality care and access to that care for uh, a low-income and vulnerable population at a price point we can all afford. And that's really the the work that we do here as as an integrated health care delivery system that is comprised of our academic medical center, our affiliation with the Boston University School of Medicine, our relationship with 14 community health centers who really form our community-based network and our health insurance plan, um, which is a Medicaid plan that provides peace of mind and access to health care to 400,000 people across Massachusetts and New Hampshire. So all the pieces are here in one place. I think that gives us a, a framework for innovation and transformation that is really unique, particularly in the safety net space, and that's why I love working here so much. You know, it's, it's interesting that you respond in that way because the, the conversation I, I just had with some of your colleagues was, was a bit about this opportunity right now to be, to be defining better methodologies for how to demonstrate what's impactful, what works, how do we start to, to quantify you know, a return for a system but payers and others. Right. And you do have this really unique asset here with medical school and researchers yeah. and others that, that most other safety net institutions don't have. Right, it's true. And I think everybody intuitively understands the wisdom of focusing on social determinants of health. but. The return on that investment is still hard to demonstrate. You know, I know as a healthcare executive that you know, kind of to the penny what will happen if we add an OR or add a hospital bed. But an investment in a community health worker that's going to keep somebody out of that OR or bed, that's a very different set of conversations. The opportunity and the challenge really comes from proving that doing the right thing actually pays off. And that's why we're really excited to be part of Avia's Medicaid transformation so we can learn from other people who are struggling with the same sets of issues and and coming up with innovative solutions that we can apply here or hopefully bring to the, bring some of our solution sets to the table that will help others. Yeah, well one, thank you for the plug. That was that was gracious of you. Uh, uh, two shameless. <laughs> shameless, <laughs> but nonetheless. You know, one of the things we have we have found in the course of, of this project and doing this work is that the the healthcare industrial complex, as, as you described earlier, has really created a, a system and, and mechanisms that help us understand, you know, advanced cost accounting at the service line level in a system. But when it comes to needing to expand a methodology to isolate the, the causal effect of uh, homelessness or housing on claims or on other parts of the delivery system, most most consultancies, actuarial firms, analytic shops, health systems, health plans don't have that wiring. And if there's a if there's a unique opportunity to innovate, it's how do we better capture information, analyze the information, 
and, and, de and demonstrate those causal and correlative effects of the things you just described. In my mind, it's really harnessing the power of our health system. So we have patients here who we ensure and who we take care of, either at one of our community health center partnership sites or here in our primary care practice. And I'll use an example that has been, and all of us are working very hard on making sure that those patients who are struggling with type 2 diabetes are in control for their disease. And we could have two patients, both of, who, both of whom's diabetes is, quote, out of control. Their hemoglobin A1C is higher than we'd like. Now we know, in, in the past, that patient would come back to their primary care doctor and they'd say, oh, your A1C is out of whack, and they would add another medicine. With, the, with our health plan and, our, and the focus that we've had on making sure that we understand the total cost of care for our patients, we can say that patient A um, actually never picked up their prescription. We know that now. We can see that we, because we didn't pay the claim for the prescription, and their diabetes may not be out of control. We just need to have a different set of conversations with that patient and help them understand and, and learn from them why they didn't pick up that prescription, whereas patient B picked up the prescription and may, in fact, need another medicine. In the past, both patients would have been treated exactly the same way. And I think that kind of basic understanding of the total experience that our patients have is what's going to increase our ability to take better care of people, have patients take better care of themselves, and overall bring down or at least bend the trend of healthcare costs that our country simply cannot sustain. So I, I love that. So, so if, I, if, if we kind of then frame three really interesting pillars to the, the enterprise you all have, have built here, you have the, the delivery system, you have the academic part of the system, and then you have this really unique payer asset for that has 400,000 plus uh, beneficiaries as part of it. And and you mentioned the term total cost of care, which I think is the the exact right frame. That that ecosystem, how do you think about the the management of that ecosystem? So like if you are going to deploy a housing program or food programs or non-emergency medical transportation, mm -hmm. how do you leverage those assets to not only get the most out of what you're driving, but to really test the veracity of, of the, the bigger total cost of care impact. I would say it's still a work in progress. You mentioned you know, three areas, housing, food, and transportation. Add behavioral health. Add in all of the things that we're, that we're working on, substance use disorder, a kindergarten readiness, care for frail elders in their home, the loneliness epidemic, all of the things that we've posited are negatively influencing the health, the health of all Americans and, and especially low-income Americans. We actually came at it by starting those programs because our patients needed them, not because we thought it was going to influence the total cost of care. And now the challenge for our system and for our long-term thrival is really can we prove to the people who fund us the Medicaid program into this, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts that the investments we are making are, are at least bending trend while improving the health of the patients we serve and the communities that they live in. So for Boston Medical Center, for many years, if you said, what's the, what's the, the mission of Boston Medical Center? We would say it is to provide exceptional care without exception. And that is still true. But as we think about what that actually means to the patients we serve, we start to think about what we call our Vision 2030, which is to make Boston the healthiest urban population on the planet by 2030. And that subtle shift from the episode of medical care to the health of the community really frames our work. 
That's what led us into housing investments. We have a therapeutic food pantry that serves 7,000 patients a month. We have done a lot of work in making sure that patients can get to visits to reduce no-show rates. I mean, if there's a way to engage our patients where they are, we, we pretty much have figured it out and found it. What we haven't been able to do is say, and therefore, we cost less. Mm. And I don't know if that's, that's the only endpoint, but I think we have to be practical about this work. And for it to continue to be sustainable, we have to find that economic endpoint. And, and I think everyone around the country is facing the same set of challenges. I think you see it in commercial populations as well. There's hunger in commercial populations that, you know, there's, there's homelessness in commercial populations, which, you know, people who sleep in their cars be, as they go to their jobs. And these issues kind of rise up in the case of, or, or, or are more prominent when in bad economic times, which you know we may or may not be heading into, but they persist in this country and they're exacerbated in rural areas and we've got to figure this out. And I think we can, but it's, it is not linear and it's, it, it's pretty humbling work. Oh, it really, it really is. I'm, I'm really drawn at the moment to this idea that that, that across the country we, we we're all kind of beginning to operate on a common thesis that if we improve access to social services, mental health services, community-based care, home-based care, not only is that good systemically, but it will it will improve the health of a community. And I think you're exactly right. We have not yet demonstrated the right economic rationale that will comport with with the way we finance our system, and that's that's gonna be a huge apex of, of innovation. Kate, talk a little bit about, you used the term thrival. Tell, what, is, what is thrival? I've never heard that. Well, I, you know, we use the word thrive around here a lot at our hospital, and I'd say probably because I think it's really important for a system like ours to believe that we can be successful. The, you know, we sit in a town, Boston, which has four top 10 US World and News ranked hospitals, and we, compete with them for patients. We have to be as good as anybody else and attract uh, brilliant young people. I mean, 700 interns and residents and fellows come here every year. We have over $300 million worth of NIH-sponsored research on this campus. It is a very vibrant organization, so people need to feel like they're joining a winning team, and, and I believe that we are that. So that's kind of point one on thriving. So the second part about Thrive is we, we want our patients to thrive. And that really is, we're really trying to shift the emphasis from the all-knowing medical organization that tells you what to do to asking, how can you thrive? We have something called a Thrive Screener. It asks eight questions. It asks, do you have food tonight? And we screened over 57,000 individual patients on this screener. So this is, this is pretty robust work. You know, do you have food tonight? About 2% of the people say, no, I don't. And we send them to our therapeutic food pantry. But we ask questions about housing insecurity. Can you get your medicine? Did you have trouble getting to the visit today? Are you taking care of somebody in your home? People think about child care, but also elder care. There's a, a huge and unpaid workforce taking care of frail elders in this country, particularly in low-income communities. And the two questions, 26% of the patients we screen pop positive on the, on the screen. The ones that pop the most are help with education and employment. No secret on how to get out of poverty, and our patients know it. So we've taken that those findings a step further, and our HR team, which is brilliant, headed by uh, Lisa Kelly Croswell, has, is trying to say, okay, what would it take for us to hire our patients? 
And so think just a step beyond what a typical healthcare system does. Many people who work in hospitals are obviously patients of those systems, but the step to identify those patients who could be successful employees and and those kinds of connections back into the community we serve, I think are going to be the critical success factors. I bet that is probably more important than anything we do medically or even economically from a from an ROI standpoint because we'd be lifting a community out of poverty and people tend to be healthier if they're higher income. It's hard work and you know it's funny the team just briefed me on this the other day and I found myself being in a I'm not particularly proud of this, but in in a little bit of a defensive crouch, more for them. And and I said, you know, the I think the most important thing you can do is choose wisely at the beginning. Make sure you pick patients who have had a good work history. This has to be successful. And part of our challenge, I think, as we attack social determinants is, is you know, everybody can tell the story of the person who lived under a bridge, who had 15 emergency room admissions, who, you know, had 10 hospital stays last year. We got them housing, and it dropped to, you know, four ED visits and one, you know, and one admission. And that saved a ton of money. But if that person isn't going to be successful in housing and they end up back on the street, we spent a lot of time and a lot of money. So we've got to figure out how we how we work with the patients and the communities yeah. to, so that this is successful. We have, a, we have a business to run here. It is paid for by Medicaid. And now we're taking this Medicaid dollar, which has been underpaying us, just ask us, we can prove that to you in a second, and trying to stretch it over a lot of social challenges and a very tough foe. We're up against poverty. So how do we do that wisely? And I think the most important thing we have to learn at Boston Medical Center is who do we do that with? Talk about the the Thrive screening tool. You said uh, 57,000 screens. Where do the screenings occur? Um, in, our so pr- in our primary care practices, okay. it's on an iPad. It's connected to our electronic okay. health record. It is a very good product. I think it's one of the smartest things we've done because it it's kind of simple, but we're asking our patients. Well, those three, those eight questions. Yeah. I mean, how much how much do you learn? And then when you can commingle that with all the other data, you know, how much more insight do you have about a patient? And I think the trick about asking the question is having a solution. And if people aren't comfortable with talking about hard things, like I'm afraid my electricity is going to be shut off, that's you know that that's a hard conversation for the patient to have, you know. But you're sending a kid home with asthma who is, needs nebulizer treatments. The electricity goes off. It's kind of a yeah. problem. So, so then talk about that. How do you build community infrastructure? How do you refer? How do you support those patients in transitioning to those solutions? I think that's something that we are learning and working on. And we talk about low-income people as if they're all the same, and they're not. When we thought about how we would best invest in housing as a public health need that we needed to address, we thought, okay, we don't know anything about this and who do we who can we work with to do to do well we work with with Boston Healthcare for the Homeless in Pine Street Inn which is a social a shelter and housing agency that's really down the street we share the care of a lot of patients we work with them on respite housing we work with a community developer on low income and market rate housing we worked with a a developer who was building a a, a a housing development but we provided a no interest loan to a grocery store that would 
uh, serve an urban food desert and provide education and employment opportunities for people. So it's there's sort of five flavors of housing investments, and we're we're trying to f- learn which ones will be the best for the f- communities we are attempting to serve serve better and the patients we 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 care for. So it's a it's a pretty humbling exercise. We're trying to make sure that we do the best we can for the patients we're helping and and at any given point in time there are 10% of our inpatients are homeless so let's say 40 or 50 patients are are homeless or housing insecure and they they are approaching discharge how how many units would we end up needing and you know we'll have long conversations about significant investments you know millions of dollars for eight units we're in a very hot real estate market here in Boston. So how do we, what's our, what's our role here? And we're frankly learning. And, and I would point out that our, one of the things we've done is also work with other hospitals in the area who have similar patients and similar challenges. So we recently uh, worked with the Brigham Women's and Children's Hospital, both of whom have certificate of need or ter- termination of need funding that they would like a portion of that devoted to housing as well. So we're trying to figure this out together. So how do you identify and collaborate with those community partners? Sometimes it it can become really difficult to bring a a win-win-win solution for the hospital, the partner, and the community, the patients, to fruition. And and where have you been successful? Where where have you had challenges with that? It's a really good question. When we are talking to community agencies, they look at us and we have, quote, all this Medicaid money, which we can barely use to make ends meet. So we've learned, I think, a little bit the hard way that a big chunk of this is is managing expectations because it's hard to have a win-win-win when somebody's expecting something much more than you can do. So that's the first observation I'd make. The second observation I'd make is that we do the best when we listen the most. I think there's a business case and then there's a community case and we have to hand that off between us because I think there's different skill sets in that. I think particularly in academic medicine, you know, kind of the joke, see one, do one, teach one. I would not do that with housing. And, and so that's a, it's a good example where your natural strengths can kind of go against what it is you're trying to accomplish. The third thing I would say is th- this is a, a long process and there's a pretty heavy regulatory environment on the other side of community development work and, and we need to work with partners who understand that and do it well. How have other parts of the city's delivery system, other academic medical centers, well-established hospitals, or even state or, or city governments, how how have you collaborated with, with them? One of the things I, I say quite often at the moment is that everybody in a community participates in a symbiotic ecosystem. And, and you may think what is happening in one part of the ecosystem is disconnected from the other, but eventually you will feel the effects of it. And it doesn't matter if you're a business leader in a completely different industry or you're running a, a well-resourced academic medical center or you're in government. And where, where are you seeing that kind of systemic collaboration? I would say the best example to point to is the fact that um, every hospital, a tax exempt hospital has to fulfill uh, their community needs assessment, the schedule H, Mm -hmm. and in Boston we did that as a group, which I think was brilliant. Not my idea, I don't know whose idea it was, but we definitely participated in it so that the, so there weren't 
eight or nine separate needs assessments for the city of Boston, there was one. And I think that has created relationships amongst the people who do this work well and has created a common understanding of the problems we need to tackle first, second, and third. We're a small town, and healthcare is a big business here. People in this town do the right thing, and doing it together is a great, is a great benefit to all. So I, I want to touch on this Vision 2030 concept. Boston is, is the healthiest city on the planet. I, I, I love that. It's such a, it's a great. It's a great line. What do you think are the, the most critical success factors, not just with BMC, but in this in this community, to be able to deliver on that aspiration? We often joke that we need to add without gentrification because sometimes this happens because low-income people get displaced. So one of the things we have to really guard against is that the people we're trying to serve can still get to us. The second is trying to make communities healthier and help them rise out of poverty is the only thing we haven't tried in terms of bringing down health care costs. I mean, I've been doing this for 40 years. I have spent endless hours locked in conference rooms trying to reduce 10 minutes off of length of stay or three minutes off of OR turnaround time. Or none of that work has brought down healthcare costs or even you know slowed the, the rate of healthcare cost growth. So the passion for this and the commitment for it comes from the fact that Massachusetts is a well-off state. Medicaid is 40% of the state's budget. It cannot continue to grow. If you care about low-income people having access to good health care and thriving, other parts of state government need to work for them and for all of us. Public transportation has to work. It needs an investment. Public education has to work. That's where kids go to school. You can't get to your job. You can't get your kids to school. You can't get job training as the economy changes. That's what states and, and cities do. And if they're spending all their money on episodes of medical care that could be prevented by investments in other sectors, that's on us. And so I think we, that's, that's what propels this. What it will look like, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I think there's, there's, a lot of, there's, a lot to, there's a lot of challenges here, but that's what a vision is. It's how to make things better. You still have to run your business. So that the, you know, we have to take really good care of somebody when they fall and break their hip. We have to do that perfectly every time. But, but the, the opportunity to prevent that because the city has enough money to fill the pothole, that's, that's important as well. Yeah. I think what's, what's so important about this idea is that if, if we know a vibrant economy kind of runs on vibrant productivity and productivity is linked to health, and health, we know through the science, is only really a kind of 10% health system, 30% genetics, and 60% what's around the, you. What's around you? Then, then that becomes, you know, obviously the the apex for for paying attention to that. And as you just described really eloquently, the the, the challenge we have and is we we jam 3.7 trillion dollars through a system that that has. Well, we've got the science. We have the infrastructure, we have the doctors, we have the compassionate people that, that fill the front lines. But we have organized the system in such a way that it is so diffuse and is so fragmented that, that we, if there's no more money you can put through the system, and there's not, as you described, there's this tremendous efficiency gap. And, and it's the closure of that efficiency gap or the narrowing of it that, that requires the kind of collaboration you're, you're doing here. I'd love, I'd love you to react to any of that. 
I, I think I'm going to react a little bit to the efficiency gap. I, I think you're talking about efficiency in an econ- in economic terms, like, in, yeah. and, and I think what I'm hearing is efficiency in, in, in how long did I wait in the ED. Yeah. So, so I had a little bit of a reaction to that because I think that it's been. <laughs> yeah, that's what you meant to say. Can't help yeah. myself. You just had a flashback. <laughs> yeah, 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 I lost I lost Kate for a minute. I've been doing that for a while. I was with you till you said that, but no, but it, part efficiency of efficiency between food. I know. FQs, no, no, yeah, no. Okay. I I understand that you're an economist and I'm not. But, oh, cool. but but the what I would say to that is we've built in some ways a, a brilliant healthcare system. I mean, the the innovation and discovery and the suffering that's been alleviated is actually mind blowing. So and what when I when I listen to the democratic debates and it's in a two hour and twenty minute debate, an hour and a half is spent on hating healthcare and health insurance. I'm thinking, whoa, whoa, we've really got a PR problem. I hope nobody gets sick on that stage because they're going to be singing a very different tune. So I worry a little bit that in our rush to fix the system, we're throwing out essential characteristics of it. We still need to train doctors. We need to train nurses. We need, I mean, think about what what an, what an average nurse does in the course of her shift. I mean, it's, you know, in addition to watch, walking 15 or 20,000 steps, which I wish I could do or should do, you know, the medications people need to understand, the interactions between them, the family dynamics, managing and quarterbacking the entire team. I mean, so that's, so I, I say that a little bit defensively about our industry, and I, and, and I, I know we can do better, good for the people we serve, but we do a lot of really good now, and I think if you're talking about changing an organization or focusing our efforts through a slightly different framework, you need to acknowledge what's really good. And so that's my defensive posture for a moment. Yeah, I, th- I think it's the right defensive posture, and I, and I think you're I think you're living that in the work that you're doing here. And to maybe put a finer point on it. It's that, it's that because we have such tremendous assets in this system, but, but yet we don't get the results we know those assets could produce. We have not optimized what we're spending. And, and because of that, though we have alleviated a lot of human suffering, the gap, that, that gap still leaves a lot of human suffering to solve. And, and that gap is partially created by I, I think funding a bunch of different institutions with different incentives and different motivations that should all be in service of a community or of, of a family or of a person. And what, what, has, what has struck me about you guys historically and what strikes me about you today as is, is we're having this conversation is the work you're doing and building those linkages to those other resources in service of a person's health and becoming the healthiest city on the planet by 2030 that's the work that that's how we that's how we optimize that 3.7 trillion that's much better said i'll just say one other anecdotal thing here and then i, I want to move move to a different subject i i was expressing to some of your colleagues a little earlier today that i i don't know that there are a lot of systems that have either the capacity or the incentive or motivate i don't know what you would call it the ability to do the kinds of things uh, that, that a safety net system can do or, or a group that's equipped in the way you all are doing can do. How do we begin to think about some of the key things you're doing and lessons you're observing through your work? And, and though every community is so special and so unique, there's a lot to be learned. I think the academic enterprise is really a, a big piece of the strength of our work because it takes the 
economic and social imperatives of a safety net and sets it into a, almost like an, a, a, a hypothesis-driven environment where we can begin to replicate the experiment because we'll have good data and good information and can drive decision-making forward in that way. So I, I agree with you, and that's why it's such a privilege to work here. Let's, uh, Kate, let's pivot and talk a little bit about um, uh, addiction and, and particularly opioid use disorder. You recently tweeted, we're on a mission to reduce opioid deaths by 40% over the next two years and heavily impacted communities by treating addiction like the disease it is. This, I, um, we've not talked about this and, and people listening to this that know me uh, know that my, my family was ravaged by this and by opioids when, when I was younger and so that's powerful. One in four people in the community you, you, you serve know somebody that's died as a result of opioids. Talk a little bit about the work that you're doing here. Addiction as a disease, as a chronic disease, what are you doing to get at the heart of that? Uh, a grateful donor who, whose family was ravaged by disease wanted to make sure that this didn't happen to people who, who did not have the means they did. So they brought addiction out of the philanthropic shadows and made a $25 million gift to our organization. That gift has uh, enabled us to do a lot of good work and leveraged a lot of the academic ex excellence that exists on the campus and a lot of the innovative care treatment that has developed over the years. I think of our addiction work kind of as in three buckets. The first is what do we do uniquely on our campus for the patients that we serve? So that I, I, the, the best example of that is making sure that wherever you hit our system, whether you are a pregnant mom, whether you're in a primary care practice, whether you're in our emergency room, you are offered the best available evidence so that most of our emergency room providers, all of our primary care providers, are wavered to prescribe medication-assisted treatment. There's none of this, you know, you have to go to a different clinic. We Not also a have more. a nurse-driven a nurse program called OBOT, which is led by Colleen LaBelle, which takes, is often space addiction treatment so you see your doctor for your hypertension and then you see the specialist addiction nurse who helps you manage the medication you may be taking to treat your addiction and all of the other issues that come along with addiction and the OBOT nurses are that model has been spread not only on our campus but with community health centers across the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, the community health centers that we work with, and others in other states. It's called the Massachusetts model. It developed here. It's it's brilliant. But the, as good care as we take with patients, I think the second phase of our work was really looking at, okay, what are we, the hospital, doing different? What do we need to do differently? And that really came down to thinking about this as a disease that affects all of us, not us taking care of them. And the first step of that was a taking a anti-stigma, a words matter pledge. So everybody on the campus agreed to ten principles: how we talk about talk about disease, and literally signed it and wear a button um, that says that says words matter, so that we don't refer to urine as clean or dirty. We don't talk about people, you know, as being drunks, or you know, we we say people are struggling with substance use disorder, like any other disease, and like any other disease. We do research, we teach people, and we take care of them. So academic medical centers do three things. We do those three things in addiction. And that has made 
us, I think, a, a real beacon for the country on how best to tackle this. And it is a big problem, and we have not solved it. And what, one of the things that I've learned at Boston Medical Center is the people that you walk by who are clearly struggling with this disease, they're people we just, medicine has failed. We haven't figured out how to reach them yet. And that's how we approach that work. And then the third piece of our work is really making sure that whatever we know, people have an opportunity to learn from us so that we spread this work as, 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 as far as we can. And we were very gratified to receive an $89 million grant called Mass Heal, which takes what we've learned here at Boston Medical Center. And there's three other states in the country that are doing this. It forms a cohort of 66 communities across the United States. And the unit of measure in this grant is what community-based interventions do we need to do to reduce opioid deaths in those communities across the country? How do we reduce opioid deaths in those 16 communities in Massachusetts by, by 40% in the next three years? That's that goal. Wow. So, so it's kind of take really good care of people wherever they come, realize that this is our problem, and spread the word. That's, that's, those are all uh, amazing pillars. It, it, it makes me just think for a moment. I, I do, I, I've been over the last couple of years doing a lot of speaking on, on this particular subject on the nature of addiction and the payment delivery system itself. And I will, I will always give, you know, give a good talk. And then at the end of the talk, no matter who I'm speaking to, I will always have a, a person raise their hand and they will say, uh, David, this, it's all well and good. And you know, love all your thinking on delivery system redesign and payment redesign and yada 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 but look at the end of the day a person's going to do what a person's going to do and if they don't want to be in recovery they're not going to be in recovery and they have to hit rock bottom before they're actually going to engage the system and I've gone from being you know a little incensed by by that disposition to, to, to trying to understand it a bit but 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 I think one of the fundamental things we we lack is that, that a person that is struggling with addiction, no matter where they are on that journey, they will have moments of clarity where they will, they will seek or want to seek redress for that disease. And our system does not meet those people where they are. Um, there are too many closed doors and what you just described was, was not just throwing every door wide open, but then putting somebody on the other side of that door by, by focusing on that destigmatization language and inviting them to come through that door. Yeah. When a person has that moment of clarity, there can't be a more important moment in their life. And you're creating that. It's hard work, but I, you know, I get to talk about it. I don't do it. I have so much respect for the staff here at Boston Medical Center at all levels, from, from the people who clean rooms or clean up after people who are in the throes of withdrawal to our public safety people who have to de-escalate people who are very unhappy that they've, they've been woken up or moved along to the doctors and nurses who take care of patients every day, to our psychiatrists and social workers. It's, it really does take a village. It's a tough disease. And um, there's no other disease where we don't ask people with diabetes to hit rock bottom before we provide them with medicine. Mm -hmm. So I think we can, we can do better. The ASSERT program initiative. Mm -hmm. Can you talk just a little bit about that? So Project ASSERT, like many things at Boston Medical Center, they all they often have a grassroots start. So this started in our emergency room by uh, Dr. Ed Bernstein, who realized that we were treating many patients in our ED who were struggling with substance use disorder. And he believed that that moment of clarity that you just described might come after you've you know, broken your leg or, you know, chipped a tooth because you fell down. And so basically, you know, 
every day, including Christmas Day. We have staff on on site who have lived experience in the substance use disorder treatment paradigm who are available to talk to people. And we do something called a brief intervention and to determine if substance use disorders is part of the thing that brought you to our emergency room today. And they are available to make connections with you, to, uh, to help you connect to addiction treatment, to a 12-step program, whatever it is is going to help you on your journey. You know, they'll tell the story of talking to a patient 25 times over the course of a couple of years. And on the 26th time, they'll go they'll go in for, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll decide that now is the time that they're they're able to have that moment of clarity and address their disease. So it's, it's a wonderful program. It's been very durable. As I said, 20 years, and I believe this model has been replicated not only across the country, but around the world. What would you tell a, a system CEO or a payer CEO that is that is starting to get very focused and, and, and passionate around social determinant related issues, mental health issues, where to start? I think the most important thing I can do sometimes is get out of the way. Much of what we've talked about started with somebody who had a very good idea. I I really think that there's a thousand reasons to say no, and there's usually one to say yes, which a patient needs it. And that ethic has really driven this place well before I got here and hopefully will persist well after I'm gone. I'll I'll use an example of of a program. It's called Street Cred. Two pediatric residents started this. He was dealing with a mom, and and he said at the end uh, end of the visit, is there anything I can help you with? And she said, yeah, I don't know how to do my taxes. And he said, we can figure this out. And just decided that we were going to start this program, got volunteers in, connected with community agencies that were already doing this work. And what happens is, in low-income communities, is people go to the place on the corner and they get their taxes done basically for free. And so when in our state where there's an earned income tax credit for low-income patients, we have been able to, by helping people do their taxes, return over $3 million to the community we serve. And the humbling and compelling part of this for me was a big chunk of those were BMC employees. We've taken that program to our community health center partners, and they use the pediatric space, clinic space, while patients are waiting. And during tax season, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday nights, there's people up there, volunteers, who are helping people prepare their taxes, returning money to the community. That's that's what I mean by getting out of the way. feels like the other part of getting out of the way, too, and, and probably the part that, that makes the CEO's influence really important is you can break or shatter structures that would prevent the ability to say yes. Yep. I'll use another example. We've been on this journey to be as green as we possibly can be. Hospitals are energy hogs, and we are. our goal is to be carbon neutral. We hope to be there by the end of this year, but it will take us a little bit longer because it's, it's a more challenging journey than we expected. And one of the pieces of that was cooling off the roof of our power plant and by, by greening it up, by putting you know a lawn down or trees, and, and we've Somebody said, well, maybe we should have a labyrinth walk for patients to meditate on. And somebody else said, well, don't our patients need food? Maybe we should have a farm. I was dead set against the farm. I thought, oh, no, it's going to leak. We're going to have, like, bow weevils up there or some, like, horrible (laughs) infestation. And they kind of went ahead without me, and we have an incredible incredibly beautiful farm that has produced 6,000 pounds of food. It goes into our patients' meals. It goes into our food pantry. It goes into our cafeteria. We sell the leftovers to employees. 34 gallons of BMC honey, get it? And I really just had to get out of the way. So 
love it. I love it. Okay, last last question. It's how I typically wind down these discussions. We know how much duress the safety net across the country is coming under because of some of the things we talked about today. Five years out, 10 years out, are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Oh, I, I'm optimistic. I, I mean, I kind of am by nature, but I I think that uh, it goes back to the the fact that we've you know we we cure diseases we take care of people we we try to meet them where they are there's a growing appreciation that we can do this better we're not the only system talking about social determinants of health i think the national conversation has moved in a direction that it needs to i think the fact that there's so much attention on it is speaks to the understanding we have that without health you can't do anything and so i'm i'm optimistic that you know, American ingenuity will solve this problem. Winston Churchill, I think. Yeah, once said I, I, I use that. In, Americans do all the uh, do the right thing after they've tried all other. After they've tried everything, everything else, everything else. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which I think is a really pro- does speak to healthcare really reform. Does. Absolutely, it really does. Well, Kay, I, I I was excited to have the discussion. I am leaving the discussion just blown away and and in awe and appreciative of the work you all are doing. And we will certainly play our part in continuing to to certainly connect you with people that can learn from you and connect you to people that you can learn from. And we will try everything else and we will solve it. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you.